The advice and opinions expressed by the host of Autism Live and her guests are meant solely as suggestion and should not be in any way construed as child-specific advice. Any choices you make in determining your child's treatment are completely at your own discretion. and welcome to Autism Live. I'm Shannon Penrod. We're coming to you live from our studios in Woodland Hills, California. We are live right now on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and about a dozen other sites. It is the 1st of March, 2023. It goes so fast. I'm really excited about today's show and really hoping we've already got uh, Michelle is watching and, and we love that. Uh, we've got already got some people watching because we're going to be talking about feeding issues with a really great expert, Dr. Yev. I'm not going to slaughter her name uh, because it's, uh, there, there is uh, the capability to slaughter her name, so I'm not going to do that. But Dr. Yev is going to be joining us in just a few minutes. Uh, she's uh, amazing. I had the opportunity to meet her in October of last year when I was up in Seattle, the lovely city of Seattle. Uh, for a speaking engagement for uh, WABA uh, and uh, met so many amazing people, but really um, Dr. Yev was a standout amongst those, those people. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Um, and sorry that it's taken us so long to get her on the show, but she's busy and we have been busy, but it's here, it's today. And she's going to talk with us specifically about feeding issues and what she's been working on for families. I think you guys are going to be really, really excited. So if you have a specific feeding question, you can go ahead and write it in now and we'll share that with her when she joins us. Um, and I know that there was a very specific feeding question that was asked yesterday. And of course, I, don't, I didn't bring it in with me. So if you're there and watching, ask the question again, because I, I sort of remember it and I don't want to get it wrong. Okay, but before we do all of that, I want to remind you of a couple of things. We're live right now on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, a bunch of other sites. Traven's going to show those to you in just a second. And, um, but interaction is available right now if you're watching us live. Now, many of you don't watch us live because your life is busy and you have other things to do at this particular hour. Well, we've got you in two different ways here. First of all, actually, we've got you in a bunch of different ways, but you can go to our YouTube channel and watch any of the videos that we've done in the past 12 years. They're there. You can search topics and see which... Good morning, Susie V. And uh, so all of that's there on the YouTube channel, but we also podcast the shows. So And, and now we podca podcast this show audio only, so you can get us in all the places that Traven is about to show you, including iHeartRadio, uh, Apple Podcasts, everything that there is. Um, and we hope that you will check us out in whatever forum works for you. Now, if you want to be able to write back to the show or suggest topics or ask a question, there are a couple of different ways that you can do that. You can write in on the, the autism-live site. Is, it's, it's not perfect. Um, you can go there and you can ask a question there on the comment, um, the chat. It's sort of misleading because it leads you to believe, oh, I'm going to ask the question and somebody's going to answer it back here. We don't have the capability of doing that. That's not really what the, it shouldn't say chat. It should say question, <laughs> but it doesn't. We're going to get that changed. We are. Uh, so anyway, uh, feel free to write in there. I think the quicker way, the more efficient method is to email me directly. And that is, uh, my email is shannon at autism-live.com. 
you can write directly to me. And if you're referencing an expert that was on the show, just do me the favor of, of telling me as much as you can remember about the expert, whether it's, you know, I saw them on the show two years ago and they were talking about this and, you know, it was a, a lady with white hair. You know, that helps me narrow it down. You'd be surprised. Um, especially if you tell me this is what they were talking about and this is my question. Because then what I do is I go back to them and say this question came in about something that you were saying, right? Otherwise, it's a general question. It comes to me and, and I uh, will go to Dr. Grampiche to answer questions that I don't know. And sometimes I might have a resource for you of a place for you to go and ask them. So we try to do the best that we can. And all of that is a free service to you guys. Good morning, Christina. Thrilled to see you there. Um, so those are the ways that you can be interacting. But I also want to say that we have coming up on April 4th, we are launching the first ever Autism Network Podcastathon. And this is when we are going to go live for 44 straight hours, nonstop, the whole time. Uh, it's a little crazy, and I am terrified. I'm just admitting that, but I'm getting less terrified because... We're certainly not doing it by ourselves. And we have so many people who are going to be participating with us. The top, any top podcast about autism, it's going to be here during that 44 hours doing their own shows for you. We are also going to have several hours of Ask Dr. Doreen and several hours of Autism Live. I can tell you that um, Dr. Temple Grandin has already agreed to be live with us on the first night. Uh, you, where that calendar supposedly is going to be available soon for you guys. We're just having a problem with an app. Uh, you know, like who isn't having a problem with an app, right? Oi! But uh, then you'll, you'll be able to see and sort of chart when, when you want to watch. And the, the thing that I, there's so many things that I love about it, right? First of all, I love that the autism community is coming together to bring you guys free information and inspiration. This makes me very excited, and we're just going to be hosting it. So that's super fun for me. Um, and we're going to get to do some of our stuff that we do with you guys regularly, but we're going to give you uh, tastes of other people, sometimes in other countries, um, and other ways of looking at the situation that you might be dealing with. It's all going to be interactive, so I, I love that, right? We also, can I tell you, Joe Montaigne also agreed to be a part of it um, day before yesterday because he's a mensch. He's the menschiest of menches. Can I just? He's always so willing. Uh, what an amazing guy. So, and we have other celebrities that we have asks out to that we're hoping that they're going to be with us as well. There is a rumor going around that in the final hour that Dr. Grampiche is going to shave my head. I would like to say that there's a distinct possibility that that will happen. I can't do it in the earlier hours because, you know, when, when they shave, uh, you know, or cut your hair, it, like I have that sensory sensitivity that I will need to immediately take a shower. Um, so if it's going to happen, it's only going to happen in the last hour. Uh, and we're going to be, at the different times that we're doing Autism Live and Ask Dr. Doreen, we're going to be asking for donations for iPads through ACT Today that will, uh, there'll be grants, uh, we're raising money for grants specifically for iPads because I would love to shave my head and know that that meant that there were going to be iPads in young people's hands. So lots of stuff. We're also hoping to have some great giveaways during the 44 hours, but great information, great inspiration. It's, yes, I'm excited too, Christina. I'm, I'm verklempt. I'm so excited about it. 
And also, so many of you said around the world, gosh, we really love your show. We'd love to feel what it like, would be like to watch live. So there will be plenty of opportunities. I can tell you that on the first day, so the, the, the first day, which is the Tuesday, we will do Ask Dr. Doreen in the morning as we always do. And then at 3 o'clock that afternoon on the 4th of April, we will do our kickoff hour. I think that's the hour that Joe Montaigne is going to be here. We've asked some other people too. Um, and then we will go into two hours of just Ask Dr. Doreen answering questions. Although I think one of those shows she's going to focus specifically on anxiety. Um, then we have uh, an hour that's, ooh, the guests. I can't even tell you yet, but it's pretty exciting. And the hour after that will be Dr. Temple Grandin. Then the rest of the hours that Autism Live is, is in will be middle of the night hours so that people in Australia and Dubai and, and Pakistan, all the people who have said, hey, we never get to watch you live, there will be some live hours in the middle of the night. Um, and one of those hours, I, I did a one-woman show called The Autism Momologues that was a, a comedy show. And um, we never were able to show you some of the things from that because there are some pre-recorded elements of it. But one of the hours, we are going to be showing some of the pre-recorded elements of the Autism Momologues, and the director of the show will be here with me talking about that. Philip, good morning. Thrilled that you're here. So uh, today, we are going to be talking about feeding issues. And um, I do want to say, first of all, that we have lots of experts that are going to be with us during that 44 hours. We have lots of experts that are on the show on a regular basis. I do have to give the disclaimer that I am not an expert in the field of autism. I am a pony, a very proud pony. I love that. I always feel like I should have a ponytail when I say that. I'm a pony uh, and whip my ponytail around. I don't have one of those, but maybe I can get a wig. Uh, so I'm a proud pony, which is a parent of a neurodiverse individual. Those are the words that I use now. Over the years, I've used lots of different words to describe who I am in relation to autism, but these are the words that I use now. I know sometimes people watch videos that we did 12 years ago and take issue with how I identified myself back then. That was 12 years ago. I, I'm not going to apologize for the words that we used at that time because that's how we identified. But now those are the words that my son asks me to use, and so those are the words that I will use. And if that offends anybody, I'm terribly, terribly sorry, but I have to be true to my son and to myself. So there we go. And I am a proud parent of a neurodiverse individual. Uh, and he was diagnosed with classic autism at the age of two and a half. And um, he is the light of my life uh, and about to be 20. <sighs> I can't even handle that. But um, I'm so proud of him. So uh, I'm not an expert in autism. That's how we got here to this uh, part of the discussion. But I am a person who wants to be... Uh, an ally and wants to be an accomplice. Now, I'm using that term because Amy Gravino, I heard her speak last week and she was like, eh, we need allies, but we need accomplices more. So I'd like to be an accomplice and um, help individuals who are on the spectrum to get all the civil rights that they deserve, social civil rights, everything, jobs, right to love who you love, right to wear what you want to wear, shake hands or not shake hands, make eye contact or not eye contact because everybody should be allowed to do what they want to do if it's, look, here's my litmus test. If it's not hurting anybody else, get over it, right? Um, you know, if, if your choice to not shake hands, who is that hurting? Please, can everybody grab a whoopee? That's all I'm saying, right? Okay, so um, 
in any case, that's, that's who I am. Don't confuse me with the experts, but do confuse me with somebody who cares deeply about whatever it is that you are facing right now. This is not a one-size-fits-all community. And by the way, this show, we seek to embrace the entire community. Of course, that starts with individuals who are themselves on the autism spectrum. That's an of course, right? Their needs, their wants, what they want to say, what they need us to hear, right? So, of course that. But then we welcome everyone who loves those individuals, everyone who is trying to support those individuals. That might be a parent. It might be a, a caregiver. It could be a grandparent. It could be a teacher. It could be a BCBA. Anyone who wants to support those individuals to live their best lives, that's who this show is for. Um, and we take that pretty seriously. And we have all kinds of programming now on the Autism Network to fit, fit different needs um, that you will see. For instance, Stories from the Spectrum on Fridays is solely the voices of those on the spectrum and no other voices, which I'm very, very proud to, to you know, be on a network where that is a priority. Okay. So we want to start with jargon of the day so we can get to Dr. Yav. And because we're talking about feeding issues today, we decided to go with the big feeding issue uh, jargon that there is, which is often very misleading. So let's take a look. First, we're going to give you the actual definition. Then we're going to give you a working definition and try to give you a context for this. Because I think the first time I ever heard um, pica, uh, you know, sometimes these, these terms are misleading. And I heard pica, and I didn't know if it was a dress designer, a shoe label. I didn't know if we were talking about pixels. On, like, what the heck did it mean, right? Uh, was it a type of food? <laughs> you know, I, I had no idea. This word doesn't give up much. Uh, just taking a sip of water. So let's take a look at, because it's, but this is not something to be made light of. This is a very, very serious term. And if somebody is talking to you about this in your life, whether it's you or the other person that you love, it's time to take it very seriously. So we're, we're not going to make too much fun of this definition. But let's take a look at what our actual definition, definition of pica is. Intentional and compulsive consumption of non-food items. Oof. So it's not by accident um, that you, you know, went to eat something and put something in your mouth by accident, and it is considered a compulsion, and it's non-food items. Now, this can range, you know, quite far, right? We know kids that will eat dirt. We know kids that will eat their own poo. And um, so this becomes a, a big, but, you know, kids will eat hair, we know kids that have eaten batteries. This gets very serious because this literally can be life-threatening very quickly. So let's take a look, uh, not making fun here, but let's take a look at our, because normally we make fun of the actual definition. But now for our working definition, it's, it's uh, eating things that are not meant to be eaten. And I think sometimes that definition helps parents um, to get a little clearer about it because I, I think when you have a girl and she sticks her ponytail in her mouth and she sucks on it, but ends up eating a little bit of hair every day, I think that a lot of parents go, well, you know, that's just a thing and it's not that big of a deal. It actually is a very big deal because we don't want pica to get any worse than it is at any given moment. In fact, we, we, this is one of those things where there's a lot of things that we go, well, you know, um, they want to hand flap? Well, when, when they have time to hand flap, let them hand flap, right? Pica is not one of those things. Um, because 
it can easily transfer from one thing to another and it can be, uh, as I said, life-threatening. Even having hair, because you know your body can't digest hair. And there have been a couple of times with not necessarily people on the autism spectrum because not other people engage in pica, right? It's not just something that happens with individuals who are on the autism spectrum. But we've seen cases where young women have had to have surgery when they're like 16, 17, 18 to have a hairball removed from their stomach. And that's a big surgery. Uh, it's not a surgery that anybody wants to do, but it's restricting their ability to take in nutrients. But we've seen other kids ingest, like I said, things like batteries, and should the batteries come open, that's acid. And that is no bueno. Um, okay, um, and we've got somebody already writing in about needing some behavioral help for poop eating, also feeding therapy and dietary supplements. This is where it all gets, you know, real, real serious because our, our kids, some of them will engage in pica with the poo. And I think it's so devastating for parents because it becomes, like there are some things that our kids eat that we go, oh, okay, that's a problem and it just is the problem and how do we address the problem? But I feel like with the poop, it becomes a thing of, oh, and it's shameful too and people are gonna be disgusted by it and people aren't gonna be around my child. People, you know, his grandmother isn't gonna wanna kiss him, so on and so forth, right? There's stigma attached to the eating the poop, so it's extra. Um, and there is help for pica, but it's very individualized and you need professional help. I say, in all honesty, parents should not be taking on pica, but really most feeding disorders completely by themselves. What I love is that Dr. Yev is going to be talking about how she supports parents, which is a really remarkable thing and um, not, uh, not something you see a lot of in this field. Uh, we had to buy a big kid onesie to help with the poo digging. And, you know, when, when there's poo digging, sometimes there's poo digging and then it ends up on a finger and then there's just a curiosity. And you guys, I'm sorry for this discussion, but, you know, if it's T TMI, but, you know, these things happen. Um, but if it's poo digging, then I, and I know this particular person that you've been working with a gastroenterologist, because sometimes... There is, uh, if there's IBS and other things that are going on, I'm not a gastroenterologist, but if there's, then there's the uncomfortableness of that there are things left, you know, around the anus, and so they dig because it feels uncomfortable or it itches, right? So you want to make sure that you are talking with the gastro about digging, first of all. Um, and we have an appointment with a psychologist and nutritionist soon. I'm glad, I'm glad. Um, and uh, uh, yes, my son, uh, that and now he has grown out of it uh, or, the, uh, or in the probiotics house and he takes himself to the toilet now when he has to poop. Wonderful for that parent. Uh, that, and she says, we went through that and I'm so thankful that it's over. Yes, and I'm thankful that you're being an example of a parent that yes, you can get through it. I don't know how much I, I don't, I don't embrace the grow out of it kind of thing. Um, and I don't want anybody to get the idea that, oh, we'll just wait and see if they grow out of it. Because too often what we see with pica is that once it starts, if we don't get control over it, it can lead to other things. So we don't, we don't want to do that. Um, so this is serious business and it's time to, you know, and you, you're, um, I see that the other mom that you've got appointments and that's good. 
I, I would use this word to say that this is what's going on to get their attention. They may ask you specifically, you know, then talk. And, and if you can, take data on what is happening. You know, we've done it before, that, that three sheet, you know, ABC. You know what I'm talking about, Christina. I know you know. Take some data on it before you go and meet with those people, and you'll get more out of that appointment is what I'm going to say. So let's talk about our guest. And she's got a lot of things that she's going to talk. I didn't specifically ask her to talk about PICA. Uh, but if it comes up, it comes up. So I, I am referring to her as Dr. Yev because that's how I heard her students refer to her. And I'm, I'm going to go for it and slaughter her name. Dr. Yev Ver, Ververka, I'm uh, sorry, uh, she's going to say it for us, is the Interim Director of Applied Behavior Analysis Program at the University of Washington and a Board Certified Behavior Analyst Doctoral. So she's a BCBAD. She's Dr. Yev. Her research and practice interests include autism spectrum disorders, parent and caregiver coaching, we love that, and mealtime support and intervention, which is why she's here. With the Herring Center's FEAST program, and FEAST stands for, get this, feeding and eat, feeding, eating, and supporting together. Don't we love that? Uh, Dr. Yev has developed a tiered approach to mealtime support for early learning settings. How much do we love that? The FEAST team has been manualizing, researching, and disseminating their approach to this use in early learning settings across the nation. Dr. Yev is passionate about helping family mealtimes feel fun and successful through caregiver coaching and education. She is also a parent herself, three children, one of whom was on the spectrum, which I know from talking to her has really fed uh, the direction that her career has gone and um, that her experiences have led her to her interest in the reform of applied behavior analysis. Yes, I said the reform. I know many of you will be excited to hear that. She is the co-founder and co-organizer of the Coalition for the Reform of Applied Behavior Analysis. It's a group dedicated to the continuous improvement of the application of ABA to improve the quality of life for its consumers. I think we can all be excited about that. So, Dr. Yev, are you there? I am here. All right. Sure. How badly did I slaughter your last name? And say it for us so that you it's did not. Say actually, what it's what Viverka. is your last name? Vaverka. Vaverka. Oh, it sounds so much better that way. Uh, <laughs> that sounds exciting. Okay. So good to see you again. The last time I saw you, you were charged with having to drive me all over uh, <laughs> the state of Washington, but I was thoroughly enjoying it. Uh, so I. Appreciate it was fantastic. It. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate your time. So let's get started with how did you become interested specifically in your work around mealtime? Yeah, so um, I think most people can relate to this that work in the field of autism, but as early as I remember, I would work with families from when I was a behavioral therapist and through my time as a, uh, into becoming a BCBA I work with families and their primary goals were always around these like routines. And one of them was mealtime. So they'd say, help, you know, help me, um, help my child eat healthy foods or eat more variety or eat something other than crackers. Um, and I remember distinctly like doing trips to um, Burger King on a regular basis to get the same, you know, 
hamburger patty, plain, no ketchup with the side of fries and anything that was different about it wouldn't be eaten. Um, families would often tell me that their healthcare providers weren't concerned about the growth. And so they would like kind of just brush it off as typical. And then families would come to me and say, but then why am I crying over it? Why am I so upset over it? Why can't I feed my child? And I realized that there's um, a lot of pressure around children as a caregiver. Um, so just the influences all around parents and caregivers around feeding are pretty um, strong that we have to, you know, and I feel this as a parent now too, you have to make sure they eat their servings of vegetables and get their protein and have a variety. And it's just one of the most cited concerns um, of families with young children, but um, then especially so in children with autism. So it became something that I was really interested in supporting in the home. So supporting before it became a problem that was um, clinical and needed to be referred to uh, like an intensive, um, intensive feeding clinic, for example. Yeah, and you mentioned some of the different things that sameness that you know kids. I I know a kiddo that it was the the Burger King French fries. He could only have those, but they had to be a certain temperature. So if mom had had driven to Burger King and it took her more than 15 minutes to get the French fries to him, then he would not eat them and it was a waste of money because they weren't hot enough. But if she would hand them directly to him, he couldn't eat them then either. I mean, this woman was working overtime just, and she was fearful that her child, you know, was going to waste away because that's all that he would eat. Uh, so there are all these, and we've got somebody writing in and saying that food textures are a problem, that they won't eat smooth foods. Um, we've got a 10-year-old that they still have to feed them um, that because he will pick up everything with his fingers. Um, what other kinds of challenges? These are some of the very common ones. What other kinds of challenges do you guys see just so that everybody can go, okay, I'm not alone in this? Are you asking me? Sorry. Yes, I'm asking you. Are you able to hear me? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Okay. Um, yeah, so specifically in autism, um, it makes sense that we're seeing a lot of these challenges because they coincide with those characteristics with an autism spectrum disorder. So mealtime is, in most cases, a series of social interactions. So if a child is already having some social interaction differences, the whole process can be a little challenging. Um, there's also communication challenges. So we see challenges in communicating their needs and wants around food. So that's really frustrating for children to not be able to say, it's this thing about the food that's aversive. I don't like what, how it feels in my throat, or I don't like the smell or how it looks. Um, so there's communication difficulties. Um, there's this focus on, on detail. So I always remember this little boy I worked with who he had this one oatmeal that he consistently ate and his mom was so happy because she knew that every morning he would at least eat this oatmeal and one day she got this new pack out and she put it out and she said here's your oatmeal and he just lost it because there was he kept saying something about a number six was missing and sure enough we dug out an old um container and there was like this little number six somewhere we don't even know what it means um on the on the package and it was not there on the new one and so he refused that oatmeal so like that kind of need for sameness need for routine if i'm not sitting at my exact spot with the like you said the exact 
temperature of food with the fork that I'm used to eating, um, then I can't eat. Um, and then we see a lot of like sensory aversions or sensory aspects that really matter, um, which makes sense because everything about mealtime is sensory, right? So there's, you know, the temperature, the, the taste, the texture, um, the, the feel of it on your fingers. Um, and that kind of goes along with uh, what you were talking about earlier, Shannon, with eating things that aren't edible. Um, and uh, another common concern that's kind of cited with this, in addition to refusal to eat or be selective about eating or just like your, your typical picky eating, is refusal to take medicine. So most children with mealtime challenges also have their parents also refuse report challenges around medication, which as we all know as parents is really stressful. Yeah. And then they're also bringing up issues um, like um, oral motor issues. Like uh, I know parents who say my child can't, you know, won't chew crunchy stuff or won't swallow things that are, that don't have a crunch to them. That, and as somebody is saying, he has uh, issues with moving things around with his tongue. I'm not sure, Christina, whether you mean that he does it excessively or doesn't do it enough. Because we have both things that could be happening, right? Um, yeah, then uh, food selectivity, uh, Alyssa says food selectivity, um, that there's only 10 items that they will eat. And Alyssa, I will tell you, I've heard of kids who will only eat two things. So, uh, you know, you've got concern about the 10 things, but... Um, it could, you know, it can be, oh, I see Christina. She says he's not moving things around enough with his tongue. Well, I want to go to the next question, Dr. Yev, which is at what point should parents say, okay, this is concerning. This isn't just your typical picky eating. At what point does it become something that you need to seek help and target it? Yeah. Um, first, first of all, can I just check in? I saw somebody commented that my mic is too hot. Can you hear me okay? Yes, we, I think it was a little too loud, but I, uh, Traven, are we good now? I'm looking for a thumbs up over there. It was, for, a, for a minute, it was like you were, it, it was going back and forth. Okay, but we're yeah, good. Yeah, I heard a little bit okay. of an echo. Okay. okay, so I think we're good now, but, uh, but thank you for noting that, and, uh, but yes, I think we've got you at a good level right now. Okay. Yeah. So this is this question of at what point should families be concerned is kind of my soapbox issue. And Shannon, you actually just commented on this too. You commented, I don't embrace the grow out of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so while healthcare providers might kind of look at the growth chart as the primary indicator of if this is a concern or not, there's so much more to it. And we really, there's no purpose in waiting um, for those negative health implications So you should be, it's okay to be concerned if you feel stress, if your child is showing signs of distress around mealtime. If mealtime's not enjoyable as it should be, um, you can do something about it or feel concerned. Um, If your child's missing out of like events and celebrations, I often talk to families who say birthday parties are a nightmare. They don't want to be near the cake because they can't look at the frosting. And so they can't participate. So if they're missing out of social events, even if they're growing fine, you can be concerned. If you're um, having to prepare multiple meals and you don't want to be, you can be concerned. So the the point here is um, caregivers have reported frustration about the dismissal of their concerns about around mealtime and feeding. Uh, and if something's concerning to you, it's valid. Yes. Um, the other... 
Oh, sorry. Yes. No, I just want to say I totally agree with you. I think so often we, you know, we're told that, oh, the house has to be on fire in order for you to be concerned about it. And that doesn't jive with our gut. Our gut says, I, you know, food is love. And you want, it's a way that you communicate with your child and, it's, and it costs money and you put food in front of your child and you want it to be a happy interaction and you want to nourish your child's soul and their body. And when, you know, when we have kids that, kids that are gagging and throwing up or, you know, just refusing or there's a battle, I think that, you know, one of the many things that I love about you, Dr. Yev, is that you're coming at it from a point of view as a parent yourself and saying this shouldn't be a battle. And that it doesn't have to be, like PICA for sure, you have to at that point be bringing in an expert. But if, if you're just having difficulty because you're having to cook two separate meals for every meal, you can be talking about it and your concerns shouldn't be dismissed by the experts that you're talking to. Uh, so yeah. yay, Dr. Yev. Uh, okay, um, so what are some things, let's go into some practical things here about how families can make that mealtime more successful? Yeah. So I kind of think about this in two categories. One is just like setting yourself up for success. And the other is those support strategies that you can do when interacting with food. So there's just kind of this baseline you want to establish. And a couple components that I think about with that are building trust with your child and then just creating an opportunity for repeated positive interactions. So if mealtime is a battle right now, you're not going to jump in and say like, okay, let's try a carrot. You want to first build that trust that mealtime isn't going to be a battle um, and in increase your positive interactions to make mealtime fun before you start introducing new foods. And that's a common mistake is people just start to do this like repeated exposure. Let's, let's try this and then let's try another food. And they don't have that baseline where their child trusts them first. And um, I've struggled with this myself as a parent as well. So as far as building trust, um, we want children to trust that mealtime will be enjoyable. This, is a, this next one's a big one. We want children to trust that they won't be tricked. So I am guilty of this too, where I've tried to, you know, like put things into the favorite muffin, bake in the carrots, bake in the zucchini. Um, I've seen this backfire so many times where children's, you know, one of their few limited foods that they will eat, like the muffin is messed with. And then they don't, they lose that trust. They lose trust that when my parent puts out my favorite muffin, it's going to taste the way I know it's going to taste. Okay. Um, so, and so, so in the beginning with the favorite foods, don't mess with it. Because I am. Don't a, mess with the I've had, I've had big success with sneaking foods into things, but I, but I have to say that I did it much later along the way, and not with the first uh, favorite food. So in the beginning, yes. don't so, mess with the food, and and set this up as a a, a time that they can trust you. Okay. Yes. And all of this, that's a really good clarification. All of this is the beginning. So if you're coming into this and watching this, and your meal times are a battle. We're not going to start by being sneaky. We're going to start by taking multiple steps back and building that trust. Trust that they that you won't mess with their favorite foods. Trust that their favorite foods will be available for them. And then trust that they'll be allowed to listen to their body. So again, this is another thing that comes with the pressure as a caregiver to feed our kids so they grow and so they're um, healthy, whatever that means to us. 
Um, and so sometimes we say things like, okay, five more bites and then your dessert. But if your child is full and they're, and you're telling them you're dictating you you need five more bites to be healthy, that doesn't promote that trust that they will learn how to listen to their body. Again, another tricky one, another one that's like, they might need some encouragement and help along the way to understand those feelings of being full or being hungry. And a lot of us still need help to trying to figure that out, right? We have a famous um, but, story in my family when I was an aunt before I was a parent. And one of my nephews, uh, Brian, and he's never going to see this, so I, and he knows I tell this story all the time. Um, I, I would take care of Brian one afternoon a week uh, when my brother and his wife were working. And I picked him up at daycare, and I would take him to the store and let him pick out what he wanted to have for dinner. And he picked out a can of the SpaghettiOs that were gargoyle-shaped. Nothing would do. He wanted the gargoyle-shaped SpaghettiOs. And so I bought them for him. I went home. I prepared it. I fixed it for him and thought, he's going to be ecstatic. He ate a couple of bites of it, and he was like, no, I, I don't want any more. And I, be, you know, I'm like an aunt, and I'm the fun aunt. It's gargoyle pasta. You asked for it. And I was like, you have to eat five more bites at least because, and he was like, no, three. And he was like, no. No, and I said, yep, five more bites before you can get down. And he ate five more bites, and then he threw up the whole thing all over the table. And I went, oh, maybe I could have listened to the child who was telling me I'm, I'm not able to eat any more of it. it. It was quite, and I had to clean it all up, and it was quite the lesson to me of, okay, you know, because I don't want anybody standing over me telling me, you know, when I'm full, five more bites. So that helped me when I, when I got to parent my own kid. You know, it's like, oh, maybe That's we're done. That's such a great example. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, several more comments here. Somebody says, my kid smells everything determined if he's going to put it in his mouth or not. So in this stage, you would let them, correct? You'd be like, let, let yeah, them smell absolutely. it. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, okay, so so in the beginning here, we're I can hear people going, what? I get to just end the battle. I'm going to give them what it is that they want. How long would this phase last, Dr. Yev? So it's hard to put a time on it. And I know it's frustrating and it's hard to be patient when you're still kind of in these beginning stages. But um, I think a question you can ask yourself is, what does mealtime mean for my, my child right now? And if it means oh, shoot, I have to, like, put away my favorite toy, and I'm going to get forced to um, eat, and then I'm going to start the bedtime routine, and it's just all these demands are going to come out, and my night is over, then it might take a lot longer to kind of build this, like, you want them running over to the mealtime. When you say, it's time, you want them excited, you want them coming over, ready to sit down or wherever you have your meal, and that is that behavior is your hint that now you can add some additional demands okay. or start like interacting with foods in, in other ways. But step one is just mealtime has to equal fun for okay. them. They are not like the end of their favorite things and the beginning of all the demands and aversive um, foods. And a lot of different ways to do this, like preparing the foods that you already know that they like, but also you know, I'm sure that you guys have come up with so many creative ways to make dinner fun, whether it's the placemat that the food is on or the plate that the food is on, or, you know, I I would imagine you have the favorite beverage and then also making the sitting around, because sometimes just the sitting at the table is the hard part. So if they want to eat on the floor, you sit and eat on the floor. 
whatever it is so that we're establishing that mealtime is a fun thing and we establish that before we add anything more. Am I, have I got it right? You've got it right. Yeah. Okay. And it could be simple things like we play a favorite song, a silly song when we all come to the table or you're putting away that food that makes them gag. You're putting it behind a barrier for now. So it's not even a thing on the table or um, you play a little family game or you turn down bright lights. Like it can be really simple things. You don't have to, you know, today at dinner, if you're thinking like, oh my gosh, I have to redo my entire meal time. That's not the case. You okay. add a little fun component or or if you're a family where you're having to feed your child and then eat separately because of your mealtime concerns and challenges, then maybe it's just having them play their favorite game or watch their favorite show at the table instead of in the other room or where you know wherever you're eating. Having them there with you doing a favorite thing, establishing mealtime as fun, even though mealtime for them at this point doesn't mean eating with the family. So. Um, now, some simple. of this, taking away the battle of it, is going to make some of you go, no, but we have rules and we have customs and my mother-in-law won't. But I, I think at this point, you're saying shove all of that in the nearest coat closet and we'll come back to it later. Right? Yes. It, yes. It takes patience and it's hard. And I always tell families, it's not going to be forever. But if you want to establish, if you if you want to remove that battle and kind of flip the way mealtime feels for you and your child, you have to start by by pairing it with those okay. those fun things first. Okay, Rosemary loves the idea of playing the favorite song right before mealtime, and Joanne has said that um, her ten year old with ASD doesn't know when he's full or hungry. How do we teach that? He will ask for a snack, and I offer something healthy, and he says no, thank you. I, I think that's an indication that he wanted to eat the thing, but he wasn't hungry. Am I wrong? Exactly. Okay. Um, because when they are hungry, I, I had the kid, because of other things, I had the kid that would eat vegetables, and, and we would be in a restaurant, and people would go, how, I've never seen a baby eat vegetables before. How are you getting that baby to eat vegetables? And I would always say, because he's hungry, and that's what we put in front of him. Um, now, that doesn't work for all kids, right? Because if they have a sensitivity to things or whatever, but he had had that from the time that he was a baby because I was a vegetarian. Um, so vegetables were what we had and was available, and he was hungry. We hadn't let him snack beforehand, so he would eat the vegetables. And I have seen kids eat things that the parent says they will not eat, um, but we took away the sugar snack that they would normally have at 4 o'clock so that when it was dinner time, they were actually hungry. Um, I don't want to take you yeah. off of your, your thing. Um, but, but I think, Joanne, if, if you offer him something that's healthy and he says no, eventually he's going to be hungry enough to want that. Or am I completely wrong, Dr. Yev? <laughs> I mean, it, I, I know this is an annoying answer, but it kind of depends on the kid. In some cases, you're complete, that's completely right. In other cases, that it's kind of a myth that kids eat when, the, when they're hungry. It's like kids eat when they're hungry and the correct circumstances surround them. And so like, I think about um, myself too, like if I, even if I'm hungry, if something's put in front of me, that gives me a gag reaction, yeah. I'm not going to eat. That's or true. if something's put in front of me, or like, like if I pack my lunch and you, you all have probably done this, if you pack your lunch with you, but it's your like leftovers that you've been eating multiple days in a row and you're 
celery and you take it out and you're like, oh, I'll just take a few bites, but I'm not really that excited about it. And then your hunger, like the motivation to eat can change depending on the context around you. Good point. Good point. Okay. So once we get to the point where we, we feel that we've got that baseline of dinner is now no longer a battle, your child trusts you. And that for some people that might take a week and for other people that might take a while, right? Like maybe even two months you know, that it could take to establish that baseline. But once you've established the baseline, what's the next thing on your tier? So there's a few things you can do, but one thing I learned this from um, an occupational therapist years ago, and she called it the parentheses diet. And I love starting here. So you kind of think about, okay, what is something my child will eat? And I'll give you an example, cereal bars. And then you say, well, what goes in the parentheses? So they'll eat cereal bars, but they have to be Nutri-Grain brand. They have to be whole. They can only be strawberry flavored and they can't be unwrapped for them. And so when there's that many things in the parentheses, you're not going to be able to just say like, let's try introducing bananas. You have to work out those things out of the parentheses first. So a possible first step in that case might be just reinforcing tolerance of it being unwrapped a tiny bit. If it can't be unwrapped for them, then they're not going to tolerate change that's really big in the form of a new food. But you can work on, okay, how can I reinforce? Like, what are some fun things we can do um, when they are okay with me unwrapping it? And again, this isn't tricking it. We're saying like, okay, we're gonna do this. It might be tricky where this is something new. After we do this, why don't we play our favorite song or let's play a little, that favorite game we have together bring the toy to the table. Um, so really reinforcing flexibility with change first, rather than bringing in a new quantity of something would be my, most of the time, my starting point, those baby steps. Okay. Uh, and uh, Christina has said, my son eats a bite and runs and goes to a sensory activity and then comes back. So in the baseline phase, we would say that this is okay, correct? If, if mealtime is enjoyable, that's a good start. Okay. But eventually, if we want to work towards him being able to sit in a chair and eat um, without having to get up and run to a sensory activity and come back, so he's eat, let's say he's eating the applesauce, but the parentheses is that he's only eating it if he can take a bite and then go run and do something sensory. So how, do you, how would you work on that? Yeah, so the baby steps for that, it could, there's a couple of things that come to mind. One is to, the kind of the most fun thing to do would be to somehow make the eating a sensory activity, but it depends on kind of what he's seeking. But is there a sensory activity you can bring to the table to increase the amount of time he's there? So then he, you know, takes the bite of applesauce, plays with the sensory activity right next to him. Or can you increase and say like, okay, two, two bites, first two bites, and then let's go together and make it a fun game. Like you're, instead of saying like, stay at the table, stay at the table, you're joining him in that, but you're increasing kind of the, the request um, or how, maybe not the two bites, but how much time he's sitting at the table that we again are teaching him to listen to his own body too. Love that. So when people are in the part where they're working on the parentheses, I'm going to guess that they really could use some support for that phase. That, that for the parent, it's a little overwhelming. And so talk to me a little bit about, you've got this wonderful um, feast program. How would 
somebody either reach out to you or can their can their um, the people that they're working with get trained in the feast method like talk to us a little bit about how that would work yeah absolutely through so um through the university of washington's hearing center we're working on um some trainings and are available for those so um shannon i'm happy for my email to be shared for folks to reach out um because we can kind of tailor it depending on what the need is we'll have some um like self-paced, a self-paced uh, mealtime training online available um, pretty soon here. Um, but yeah, we can we can certainly work to support um, folks okay. in whatever whatever that means for them. Okay, but they can. But so I would definitely reach out to Dr. Yev. You guys, do you want to say what your email is for those that are listening in podcast? Sure. Yeah, it's y e v e b at uw.edu. It's not as hard as we thought it was going to be. We have to, (laughs) Um, and we'll try to put that in the the notes, the show notes as well. So you can reach out to Dr. Yev and talk about that. And you can also reach out to your, your provider for whatever services that you guys are getting. I think it, feeding comes under a very interesting heading sometimes, Dr. Yev, that um, I have heard of ABA providers, certainly, that have done feeding training with caregivers, but I have heard of ABA providers who have said, we don't do feeding issues, which is interesting to me. Uh, I have heard... That is interesting. Right? Isn't that interesting? I have heard of OTs who have worked on, certainly, the oral motor kinds of things, as well as SLPs, sometimes in some circumstances. But Far more often, the parent goes, I have a team of people and no one does feeding issues. This is kind of what inspired our tiered approach to feeding is that um, it doesn't all have to be like we wait, wait, wait until somebody has a clinical um, diagnosis and they have to be referred for intensive feeding services. We can do things before that proactively. We can make eating fun. And so that's kind of what we call the, t- the bottom tier of um, feeding intervention. So it's that like, what can we do to embed into home mealtimes to make it to make them uh, enjoyable. And so it's not, I, I would don't even refer to myself necessarily as a feeding therapist or feeding specialist, but a BCBA who's interested in making mealtimes more enjoyable. Well, and that is an amazing thing to be interested in doing. Um, and, and we said at the beginning that picky eating is just one of the many concerns, that there's a whole lot of things um, that people have to deal with. What are some simple strategies that p- parents can implement maybe even today, uh, whether it's picky eating or something else? We've been talking about that, but, t- but what else do you have in your bag of tricks you can share today? Um, I think this is kind of more picky eating um, related, but I, but one thing that I would hope people would leave here with is to redefine what it means to try it. So, um, Shannon, maybe you can help me pick kind of what a non, non, do you have a non favorite food that just like, you can't even think about without having a, a reaction? Well, I, you know, I love all vegetables except for wax beans. I don't know what the purpose of wax beans is in the world. They squeak when you eat them. They don't, they don't, they're not flavorful. They taste like cardboard. I, I don't want wax beans. 
but okay. I but Perfect. I will eat them if forced. If you want something that really makes me gag, then then we're talking about calamari. Calamari. Okay, let's go with calamari. Ooh, I love calamari. Oh. Um, so. So this is actually a perfect example. So you come back to Seattle, Shannon, and we go out to a restaurant and you're hungry because we've been walking around and touring and it's been smelling so good because we're at the Pike Market, right? Yes. Um, and everything smells good. Your motivation to eat is high. We sit down and I order my favorite food, calamari, and it comes out and what happens to your hunger? It completely disappears, yeah. right? You're like, wait, no, thank you. My stomach no longer is giving me those cues that I want to um, eat. And if I am like I am sometimes with my kids, even though I know better, I might say, oh, come on, Shannon, this is so good. It's one of my favorites. What's the big deal? Just try it. Just a bite. Does that try it doesn't really make you want to try it. You still are having that, no. that gag reflex. You're still like you're shut down, your motivation. I would go shopping while you ate. Done. I would go shopping. Exactly. I would be like, I'm going to go look out the, the booths. You enjoy your meal, Dr. Yev. I'll, I'll catch you when you're done. Which is exactly. the kid who gets so, up and leaves the table. Right? Which, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So even though I'm saying it's just calamari, like, yeah. When you say that to a child, it's it's just the banana, it's just yogurt, and they're like, I can't even look at it yeah. without feeling something. And like, if everybody watching this thinks about that food, that makes them like have that visible reaction, like your yeah. your face changes, right? Um, so redefining try it is the the thing to, that I would encourage everyone to do today. So try it can mean just look at it and stay with me, and let's let's order you something else, and you be okay with me eating it first. So that could be an exposure. And this repeated exposure really works. So um, exposure doesn't have to be put it in your mouth, like chew, swallow, eat an entire serving size. It can just mean be tolerant of it today. And then maybe down the road, um, you get used to it being offered and you might touch it, you might smell it, you might dip it into like your favorite sauce of all time and kind of like lick the sauce out of it, get a little bit of taste out of it. But, but it's going to be a long time before you're willing, if ever, to actually um, take a bite of it. And so just redefining that and, and kind of following your child's lead to put more of their favorite foods or like, um, you know, combined foods in a way that might be more fun or more enjoyable is, I think, the, the one um, kind of easy thing to start with. And I love that, that all of these things don't require the parents to rearrange their entire lives. Because a lot of times, the, the advice that people get give us, it's like, oh, I have to do everything different. Which I feel like, as a parent, makes me go, oh, so it's all my fault. Right? Um, so I love this because this is a kinder, gentler way of dealing with today. And saying, you know, we're going to get there, but we're going to get there on the slow-moving train. And, and we've seen, research shows that that exposure thing does work. I could see where if there was like 32 times that you sat and ate calamari in front of me and then eventually said, you know, do you just want to smell it? I could see where it might take me two years, but I probably could eat a piece of calamari. Um, I don't want to push it, but maybe. Uh, <laughs> I kind of want to work on this now. Next time you visit, yeah, I, I, I'm total vegan now, so it's not going to happen. 
But, okay. but, okay. but, you know, let's, let's face it, if there was a motivation for me to do it, like I needed that to stay healthy or whatever, or you may, like, you know, if I was on a game show and they offered me $50,000, I would be choking the calamari down. I would. Uh, I, w I would be very unhappy about it, but I would. Uh, okay, they're asking a bunch of different questions, but they would like your email address repeated again, please. And Traven, maybe sure, if you can yes. put it up, it would be great. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, Y-E-V-E-V -E -E at U-W And there, Traven's got it up there on the screen for you guys. And we will put it in the show notes as well. Uh, Joanny wants to know, Dr. Yev, do you recommend dipping sauces? I love using dipping sauces. So, I mean, I could talk about mealtime for hours. Um, <laughs> but uh, dipping sauce to like a kid that loves ketchup, it's so... And that they use like the fry as the just the vessel, the utensil to get the ketchup to their mouth. Um, combining ketchup with or whatever their favorite dipping sauce or puree is with the food that you're working on is an awesome way to do it. So, like, let's say you're working on a carrot, they dip it into ketchup, and sometimes they're weird combinations, but they work. Dip it into ketchup, use it just as a spoon, but they're getting that texture of the carrot. They're getting a little taste of the carrot kind of a fun exploration you have to make it fun too um fun exploration and there's no pressure to take a bite of the carrot but you can say whoa you tried something new how fun was that to try a carrot as a spoon like it can be anything a pretzel stick and a banana but any sort of that um combination um and this is where it gets really specific to your um child and i love i love doing that Okay, and Rosemary asks, any tips for kiddos that are nonverbal and still working on receptive language in relation to trying new foods? What I'm currently doing is placing her non-preferred food in her mouth and counting to 10, and then she spits it out. I think if that's working and it's not aversive, like if she knows um, that she has that out to spit it out, then that's great. But really, like... The language piece isn't necessary for combining foods in ways. So if you make a list of kind of her um, favorite foods and then foods that um, you might want to work towards, how can you combine those? You don't really need, like you, you have a nonverbal way for her to communicate that she's okay to spit it out. Sometimes we'll use like a no thank you bowl or an, uh, a plate where it is like the discard plate where we allow kids to take food out and say like, nope, not, that's not happening today. Um, so you can do that non-verbally and just kind of demonstrate that that, that is available for that purpose. Um, but really just kind of the, the um, pairing non-preferred with preferred foods. Again, as long as it's there's no signs that it's aversive and that you're losing trust or that um, mealtime is becoming not enjoyable. Right. It can't be traumatizing. Right. And we've seen that. At, 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 we've, all, we've all seen it. Whether we've been a part of it or not, we've seen something that's traumatizing at the dinner table where somebody is forced to put something in their mouth and then it turns into something else and it's a whole, you know, it's a whole Jerry Springer show, uh, <laughs> right? Um, and I think, I think most people remember a moment where somebody forced them to eat something when they were a kid. We didn't like it. Um, yeah. So just make sure that it's that not something that's traumatizing. Uh, okay. There was something else that I was going to ask you about and I completely forgot because um, I lost my train of thought there. But we're out of time anyway. But Dr. Yev, this is amazing. Oh, I know what I was, I was going to ask you. 
it says here that you guys have been manualizing. And I had to look at that three times to go, what does it mean to manualize? So, but I think that means that you've been putting it together in a book form, yes? It, it does, yes. So we're working on um, this first one is specifically for early childhood settings, and we're a ways out, but our goal is to make this information accessible um, and easy. So it's a work in progress. We're we're on our we're on the way to it. So um, I'll communicate that with you, Shannon. Once yes. We're a little closer and have some more information. Wonderful. And by the way, Rosemary loves the idea of the no thank you bowl. Um, I love that too. I have got that from my OT friends. That's a wonderful thing. Well, we thank you and we're saying hello to everybody at the University of Washington uh, where your students are and how lucky are they to have you as, as a teacher and as the interim director of applied behavior analysis. And sometime you have to come back and talk to us about the work that you're doing for the Coalition for the Reform of Applied Behavior Analysis because that's oh, love that. a big interest to me. Um, I, I, you know, I don't think I would ever have thought about that in those terms, except that now I'm seeing how, for me, what's crazy is how different everybody is doing everything. And, and while we want people to do things differently because every individual is different, I mean like totally not paying attention to the science different, which makes me itchy and crabby. Uh, which you know, we've had that conversation in the car. Um, we have, yeah. I'd love to talk <laughs> so about it. We'll have to have you back on to talk about that. But please say hello to everybody up there for us. And thank you so much for being here with us today to talk about this important topic. I think everybody really enjoyed it. And expect some emails from Thanks people. Thanks for having me. All right, you take care. I will. Bye-bye. You too. Bye. Uh, Wonderful to have her here with us uh, answering you guys' questions and talking about this from a perspective that isn't uh, heard as much, uh, which is that this does not have to be a battle at dinner time. All right, we are out of time, but we are back tomorrow with Let's Talk Autism with Shannon and Nancy. Nancy Allspot Jackson will be joining me, and we've got some really important news stories to share with you. We have got a total of three guests who are going to be joining us tomorrow. Karen Hale is going to be joining us, and she is a mom and a pony. I, I don't know how she identifies, but she's a pony, and she is going to be talking with us about some of the things that she's doing on her radio show that you guys will find really interesting. And then we've got a mom and a son who are going to be with us. The son is one of the actors featured in the new Woody Harrelson movie, which I, one of these days I'm going to remember what the name of that movie is. But you guys have seen the trailer, and uh, is, it, is it Champions? I don't know, Traven, uh, if you can tell me. Uh, but um, we've seen the trailers. It's coming out in just a few days. I think it comes out on March 10th. And Woody Harrelson is a professional basketball coach who is tasked with going and coaching a team, a basketball team that consists of all individuals who are designated as special needs. And the actors who played the, the what is the name of it? Champions. Okay, so I'm not crazy. Uh, and they are champions. Uh, so, and, and we get to, I'm sure that we get to see Woody Harrelson's 
look at what this is and what this coaching opportunity is in a different way. So one of the actors from the team is going to be joining us this afternoon, uh, this, uh, tomorrow. Uh, we're going to tape it this afternoon to be live tomorrow uh, with his mom to talk about what it's like when you get called up to be in a feature film starring Woody Harrelson and uh, this moment before everybody knows his name, we're gonna have an opportunity to talk with this young actor. So you are not gonna wanna miss that hour tomorrow. And even though we're taping it this afternoon, I will be watching it with you live tomorrow. So any questions that you have, you can ask those in real time tomorrow and I'll be answering, all right? We'll be back then. Until then, give your kiddos a hug from me and one for you too. Bye-bye for now.